let us uh, turn now in our scriptures to Colossians chapter 3, where we will start reading with the 18th verse and then read on through the first verse of chapter 4. Colossians 3, verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you who serve uh, the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. We have before us um, certain commands, but I've entitled the sermon The Gospel Effects. That is the, the effects of the gospel. Gospel effects, wives, husbands, and anon and anon. Wives, husbands, children, servants, and that sort of thing. Our father, uh, Martin Luther, was very zealous. I would even say sometimes too zealous, although I, I, I really um, shrink from criticizing him uh, too loudly. But uh, Luther was so zealous for the gospel that if anything in his theology, he understated our obligations. Now, Calvin and some of the Calvinists uh, I don't think did that. They they have they have stated they have restated wherever they saw things that were obligatory on the people of Christ. They've developed teachings on that. For instance, in the catechisms, if you study them, in the catechisms it will it will do, it does a study of the Ten Commandments and it lays out the things that the commandments uh, command and then uh, and and uh, promote and then it lays out things that the commandments condemn or prohibit. Yeah, on each of these laws, so that each law, one, two, three, four, up to ten, each of these laws is, is de dealt with in terms of obligations. So the Calvinists are famous for for dealing with obligations. It's on it's on that matter or on that point then that sometimes Calvinists are accused of being legalists that they 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 give too much credit or too much significance to the obligations of the scripture that God lays upon us. <clears throat> and uh, uh, we realize that that is a possible problem. And so where Luther just emphasized the gospel, now he also spoke of the law, he also spoke of obligation, but he almost did it shyly or with such deference that it's as if 
they, they, they don't matter as much as, as it sounds like when the Calvinists speak about them. But really, both sides really agree. Yeah, because we cannot let our obligations become so large that they obscure the gospel. We must be people who love free grace. We must be people who champion the Lord Jesus Christ in his work. And we must be people in the end that realize that the only way that we get sanctified, the only way that we achieve in terms of our behavior, our obligation, our law keeping, the only way that we succeed at that is through our understanding of the gospel. If we really understand Christ in our lives, if we really understand what he has done, if we really understand his success, if we really understand that our perfection in, in Christ begins at the very beginning of our Christian lives, then we appreciate the gospel. And if we appreciate the gospel, then it drives us to to love the law of God and to, to, uh, to, to seize upon our obligations, not as a way to get to heaven, not as a way to please God in order to be saved, but in order to please God by way of thanksgiving to him for the gospel. So the first point here, as you have in your bulletin, is, as I call it, the gospel effects versus legalisms. If you take what God has said to do, if you take the obligations that you find in Scripture and you do them in such a way that you think that you're going to earn merit by them or draw closer to God by way of, ju of your justification of your salvation, that's the wrong way to use the law. And both Lutherans and Reformed deny that and, and teach with great energy and vigor against that kind of thing. But if you see... The, 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 the fact that the gospel has, is so powerful and it has such beneficial effects upon us that we must, if we are truly saved, we must become more sanctified. We must uh, develop ourselves spiritually. And if we have the spirit of Christ in us, that will, be, that will take place. So that if we, if we completely dispense with that side of our faith or if we are disinterested in it. It's not a sign of anything other than we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us. So, but those two points, the gospel and law, gospel and obligation, it's a subtle difference between them, but it's a great and, and significant difference that must be maintained. So there's a little systematic theology to begin the, to begin the sermon here on the obligations that the Lord lays before us. But we see the logic here. Uh, Christ, we saw last week, <clears throat> where, um, where this, this word is called the word of Christ in verse 16. In other words, the word of Paul, the book of Colossians, it is called Obviously, clearly, didactically, it is called the word of Christ. Jesus was long gone, right? How could this be the word of Christ? Because Christ is the incarnate word. Christ is the eternal word. Christ is up, up in heaven. And every word that we find in the Bible was inspired by Jesus Christ. So every word in the Bible is the word of Christ, even though in his incarnate, in his incarnation, and incarnate being, he may not have spoken it while he was here. 
So this is a real important part of understanding the word of God. And uh, it's proper for us at any point, because of verse 16 there in Colossians, at any point where we see the word of God written, we can say, thus says the word of Christ. Thus says the word of the Lord. That's just a one, such a wonderful point to make. And we see that we have a scripture proof for that in the 16th verse. So <clears throat> here we see that this, that it, this is uh, the, the word of Christ and, uh, and Christ up to this point, Paul has just developed the gospel. And now in this third chapter, he's developed the gospel's effects upon our Christian lives. So we see how in systematic theology, how these things work together for good for those of us who are called according to his purpose. And so uh, from speaking more generally about the, the effects of the gospel up above uh, in chapter 3, now Paul gets down to the nitty gritty. And he addresses us specifically in our offices that we find ourselves in in this life. So he addresses uh, husbands and wives, children, uh, fathers, bond servants, uh, and all of that sort. He addresses these different groups. Now, having said that, we get to we get to number two on our outline. Um, <clears throat> it's very interesting. We know that in the Christian family, that the husbands are uh, set to be the superior person in the family. Well, why doesn't why doesn't Christ, this is the word of Christ, why doesn't Christ in all of his wisdom begin where he should? I'm putting the word should in quotations here. Why doesn't he begin with a top spot with the men? Why doesn't he begin his exhortations with the fathers? Because, brothers and sisters, he realizes that the secret to the family is found in the mothers and the wives. The mothers and the wives are second in the order of superiority, but they are first in the order of efficacy and the ability of the family to achieve its gospel status. And we find this almost everywhere in life. Oftentimes, it's the number two and the number three people. Oftentimes, it's the, in a company. It's the vice presidents, it's the men underneath, the women underneath that uh, are really the keys to the company. Because if they are in revolt against the CEOs and the, the superiors of that company, the company will not succeed. And in every family, women, you may be number two, but you're number one in whether or not your family will succeed. That is just a... And that's a spiritual insight that we have here from the scriptures. That, that, that That's why Paul begins with the women in terms of his exhortation. When I saw this a couple of weeks ago, you know, and I was thinking, I've got to preach on this. And I was three or four weeks ago, I, I noticed it. I thought, oh, brother, here we go again. It's not an easy passage to speak to because of our, our culture is so... Uh, obviously against any order of superiority in culture and then certainly in family. The, the, big, the big word, the, the one of the key, the electric terms that has come to fore 
just recently in our popular conversation is the word equity. And this is a word that, uh, uh, it, it, it's a synonym for equality. It's a word that was used as one of the three key terms of the French Revolution, which those of you that have studied history know is one of the most radical human movements or one of the most radical developments in history that we've ever seen. If you want to study radicalism, study the French Revolution. But um, uh, one of the three terms that they put, that they celebrated, was the idea of equity or equality. Namely, that everybody was equal. There was nobody that was higher or nobody that was lower. Of course, um, in the midst of that revolution, it turns out that there were some who did not die in the conflagration of the French Revolution. It turns out they were higher. <laughs> and then those who, <laughs> those who were all of the equals, they were the ones that were murdered underneath them. And that's the same way in all forms of communism. Uh, communism celebrates this idea of equity, of equality, that we're all equal, that no one is above any other. But who was just a little bit above? The members of the party. <laughs> Yes, the member Stalin and Trotsky at one time and uh, um, uh, Marx, Engels. Uh, so they're, we're all equal. And, and as, as George Orwell wrote his famous book on Animal Farm, we're all equal, but there are some that are a little more equal than others. And uh, so we have that. And I fear that, you know, as I come to the message, I, I don't I want to teach God's word. Uh, but I, I, I know that when I do that, and it's, it flows so much in the face of our common culture, that it's, it's more difficult to preach on that. Because I, it's very easy for people to hold me in contempt if I talk about the superiority of husbands over wives. Uh, albeit, that is a scriptural concept. And it needs to be dealt with with care, which I hope we do in this message. But... That's by way of, of introduction here to say that this first exhortation is to the wives. <clears throat> and um, it says that uh, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, for the wives that are here, if you have a secret jealousy for being number one, for having your opinion be primary in the families. If you have an envy of your husband or an envy of that, that first spot as God lays it out for us in the family, um, if, if you're involved in an ongoing program to impeach or to replace your husband's headship over the family, uh, if, if dissatisfaction with your husband is your number one concern or dis, 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 dissatisfaction with your being number two. If that is something that is prominent in your life, then you have powers that are working within your heart and your soul for the destruction of your family. That's just the way it is. You may not believe it. You may not like what I say, but that is God's word. I remember I go back to I had a couple of sermons, three sermons over in Airdrie about how to deal with, how to treat your children. And uh, I knew how difficult those sermons were going to be because the culture over there in England and Scotland is they're really hung up on this idea of equity. And they do not, they do not 
they, they hardly discipline the children over there at all. And this is within the Church of Christ too, sadly enough. Um, now, <clears throat> if there are those people from the Airdrie Church that are watching, I, I don't mean the, there's no discipline at all, but I just mean that it's a real sore point and preaching on this over there. Because, so when I, when I preached the messages over there, uh, for, the, for the only time on any messages I preached over there, I had, I had scriptural inserts with scripture after scripture after scripture on this little insert for each, each work's sermons, each week's sermons, testifying to exactly what I was saying in the sermon. So that if they said, well, we disagree, and we think you overemphasized this, or we think you went too far in that regard, I can just say, well, you know, I, well, all I can say is this is what God's word says, and point them back to these scriptures that were written there. But it is difficult in the Church of Christ. It's very difficult to arm the church to be more culturally sensitive to the weaknesses of their culture, to the weaknesses of our culture in any one given day, and to the differences which scriptural culture would lead us to celebrate. It's very difficult. But if the church does not do this, then the church becomes swept up in the culture. It goes along with the culture. It loses its saltiness. It loses its savor. And the church suffers from a lack, of, from a want of godliness and from all the insights that God has in his word. So wives, uh, it's for this reason that, that God would first uh, begin to exhort you to submit to your own husbands. Now, the, the illustration that I use in this, <clears throat> that I love, is the illustration of the president and the vice president of a company. This is very, very important. When it says to submit to your husbands, it's a, it's a kind of relative submission that, that we can easily identify when we think about a company. When we think about a company, the president of the company or the CEO of the company, he could not succeed if he treated his vice presidents in a servile or a servant fashion, could he? If he just went around brandishing his power, making commands here and there, and asking everybody to fall down before him like some great king and worship him, that would not work. We can see that with our minds and our understandings. Well, why do we think that that kind of superiority is what God commands of us as husbands over our wives? And so this leads to number two. Uh, just keep that, keep that illustration in mind for, for checking your own, um, your, the way that you behave as a husband or a wife. You're like the vice president. How would, the, how, how would a vice president behave to a president, president? How would a president behave with his vice presidents? You know, the, the president of a company, the CEO of a company, is working day and night to cultivate in his vice presidents, somebody that might be able to stand in for him if he was taken out of the picture, if he got transferred, if he died, whatever. And that's exactly what we're doing as husbands and wives together. Very often, husbands are taken out of the picture. God in his providence will, will uh, reap the life of the husband and take him out of the picture. And then what will the wife do if she's never trained at all, if she's never thought about how she would be in that office if she were there? You see, she must be trained. She must learn. She must be ready. She must be armed for the day that where she might have to step up and fill in for her husband in one way or another. 
becoming a widow even, and having to take over total control of the family. And, uh, and uh, sad would that day be if she had a husband that did not have the view that the Bible here describes. So the second exhortation is to the husbands. <clears throat> husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. We'll take this in two parts. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, now, it, it, um, the, the illustration of the bitterness does help us even with the first concept because we say, well, why would a, why would a husband be bitter toward his wife? Well, if the wife were not fully sanctified, if she were not perfect in Christ, then things that she might do would offend him, wouldn't they? Now, are any of our are any of our husbands perfect in Christ? No. <laughs> are any of them fully perfected? <laughs> no. So you see, we husbands, we we have all kinds of opportunities in our lives to create. Uh, uh, bitterness toward us by our, by our behavior. Very often, it's an, it's an, I can't even say it's an unhappy situation, but very often uh, our wives are smarter than we are in some cases. Sometimes, it's almost in every case. <laughs> Sometimes the wives are just, have a, uh, their brains, I mean, we all are operate with the brain, with the, the, little, uh, the gray matter, as one famous detective says, a Belgian detective, we, we all operate by the gray matter, and sometimes the gray matter in our wives is superior to ours. Uh, but usually, <clears throat> if you get a godly wife who knows that she is, let's say, technically smarter than her husband at, at many points, usually a godly wife will say, yes, but uh, my husband is really superior to me in many areas, and she can tick them off because she knows what they are, because she's analyzed them out. In her brilliance or in her superiority, she's analyzed her insuperior, her, her inferiority in various things. Maybe it's maybe it's just in terms of her uh, counter or her uh, personality attitude. Maybe she sees a strength in her husband and his masculinity that she doesn't see in herself. And so she's glad. She's glad to be submissive to her husband, and you see these, these two key words, wives, submit to your own husbands, husband, husbands, love your wives. If, if women are submissive to their husbands, if they solicit this in their minds, if they cultivate it in their minds, and if, if men are loving to their wives, they will make deposits in the bank that can never be bankrupted or ruined by a general banking failure, by some assault that comes upon the family or whatever. If you are ministering to each other in these ways, wives being when a wife is submissive to her husband, when she, when she loves that, when she shows her affection for her husband and being submissive, it naturally works within the husband's heart and mind to want to be even more loving and even more indulgent and even more sacrificial for his wife. And those are the very things that the wives want. So if they are disputing of his superiority, they find that they get less of what they want. If they, if they give him what he wants by his nature, by his sex, they find out that they get more of what they want by their nature and their sex. And a, a, 
disregarding the modern philosophy of things, men and women are different. They have different natures. They have different makeups. And they're complementary and um, uh, not uh, uh, envious or abusive. So the husbands are to love their wives, it says, and then it says, do not be bitter toward them. And I've already explained that partially, but uh, it's very easy as a man to feel like whenever your wife says anything to you, that she's being impudent. And you need to realize that that she often does have good ideas. And if, if, if a CEO of a company didn't expect his vice presidents to ever have any good ideas, he's not going to be a very effective CEO, is he? Now, most in the company, most CEOs are glad to hear ideas from their vice presidents. And likewise, down the line, vice presidents are glad to hear ideas from their inferiors, technically technical inferiors in the company. But there, in any company, there are scientists and there are um, uh, uh, developers of that company and its wares. That, that's where some of the best insights come from. And they come from the bottom up sometimes. And it's the wise administrator that is able to use those things and bring them into fruition company-wide so that the the insights of one branch end up being insights for the whole company. Why isn't that the way that it works in the family? So we husbands, we need to be be less jealous of our position. I'm speaking, I'm, I'm exhorting myself in this. Susan might even know of what I speak. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we need uh, we husbands need to be aware of this in our own lives that, that just because our wives tell us something or just because they make some statement it doesn't mean that they are trying to contest our whole position our whole superiority in the family they're just trying to be like a loyal vice president and help the whole company and its atmosphere move along you know sometimes they, they say, uh, Reformed Presbyterians or Calvinists, that all we do is speak about theological things. And today, you know, it's, it should be obvious today that we're trying to get down into the nitty-gritty of behavior, our sexual, social relationships within the family and that sort of thing. But we do the best at those applications of Christ's word if we understand his doctrine first. And so we, we try to cover both of those. But today is a very practical sermon. And it's intended to be practical, but if, if we don't understand the gospel, all of this is lost on us because all, all of this has the motivation of Christ behind it. Our thanksgiving in Christ. We're so thankful for what Christ has done for us that we're willing to be submissive, that we're willing to be loving. And then we come to children. Children, obey your parents in all things. And there are few few words associated with each of these commands. Wives submit, husbands love, children submit. Uh, so these few words, it puts even more emphasis on every single word. Children submit. And what does it say? I can't believe this. How can this be the word of Christ? It says in all things. <laughs> you know, kids in the congregation, how, how can God tell you to be submissive in all things? Doesn't he know that you have insights? that are probably superior to your parents. But he says, be submissive in all things. 
The reason for this is is that when we if um, if our child thinks that he or she sees error, then what God is saying to us is that there's more promise and there's more blessing in you being submissive, even where you see that your husband, your father, or your mother is wrong. There's you're going to be more and more blessed in the long run if you just obey. Then keep keep your idea in your head. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of all of your brain power or all of your observations, because sometimes you're probably right. But there's more benefit in the end to learn how to be submissive at this point in your life than it is in having your ideas prevail. One of the, one of the reasons is, as a, as a daughter, if you learn how to be submissive to both parents, then you'll learn how to be submissive to your husband someday if God blesses you with one of those. And if you're a son... Uh, who's growing up and you you have to be submissive to your mother as well as your dad it's fantastic training for someday how you will treat a wife the family is like an incubator it's like a test tube where we find ourselves in this situation where God allows us to learn and to grow and if we obey what he says we'll see Wow, God was, well, later on in our lives will say, wow, was God smart or what? Uh, when Pastor Canole spoke about this, I remember that sermon. Was, was Pastor Canole smart or what? You know, that day, I had a few questions about what he was saying. But now, with the 20 or 30 years of my life, I never thought my father and my mother were more brilliant than when I got to 50 and 60 years old. And I saw the, the love and the devotion and the way that they feared the Lord. I remember times when my father would come in and he probably lost his temper. He'd gather the whole family together. He'd, he'd ask us kids for forgiveness because he saw where he'd erred. And he wanted us to truly forgive him. He was sorry for the way that he had behaved. Well, if you don't think that that empowers a child, if that doesn't teach a child a great and mighty lesson, uh, you, you've, got to, you've got more to learn than I think. Because uh, you see how it, it touches me to this day. They're long gone. They're above with Christ. But their illustration and their behavior still touches my heart right to the depth. The passage goes on then. I, 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 we, we just have to hurry along here um, because of time. But the passage goes on then to deal with bond servants. And it says, bond servants obey in all things your masters. Now, most of us today in this modern age don't have Bond servants, or not, it's a fancy word for a slave or a servant. You, but even if a, even if a person is not a servant, some people have had people that have come into the house as cleaners to help mom or dad. Sometimes fathers have had people to mow the lawn and that sort of thing. That, that's in the classification here as a, of a bond servant, somebody who's working for the family uh, who has to obey, who has to do what the family wants them to do. You know, 
if the if some if you've hired some guy to mow the lawn and you want him to mow the lawn in a diagonal way, crisscross, and then change the next week and go diagonally the next week, and then maybe go straight the next week and then sideways the next week, the bond servant has to do that if he wants to get paid. So you can be anywhere from somebody like who's hired to mow the lawn or somebody who does your laundry for you or somebody who irons for the mother or washes clothing or helps out with the children, babysits, whatever. You have to do what the parents uh, who've hired you to do uh, and pay or they're paying you to do or that you're under their command. Now, uh, in, in, in this, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament world, in the Old Testament world, um, the... the um, Social welfare part of the society was run by indentured servants or slaves, and there were different levels of these in the family. But you could be, you could, you could have been an abject slave. In other words, you, you could have been bought by a New Testament Christian family, and you could have been a slave in that family. Onesimus was mentioned in the, the pastoral epistles. Onesimus was such a man. He was actually a slave in a Christian family. So our modern views of slavery have to be kind of readjusted to consider the biblical ideals and uh, the, the, the way biblical society operated in God's wisdom. In, in, in the Old Testament world, if you could not take care of yourself, and even in the New Testament world, if you could not take care of yourself, you could be you could sell yourself in slavery. That's just like Social Security. You give up certain rights. You know, when you go to the doctor as a person on Social Security, you can you get you get a lot of stuff paid paid for. But you have to do it. You're kind of a slave to the system. You have to do it exactly as they tell you to do it. And you may have an idea. I need Doctor B over there, Doctor C or D. But you can't go to him. You have to go to Doctor A. Why is that? Well, it's part of the social welfare system that we have today in our modern life. It's no different. It might be different by degree or kind or application, but it's no different in principle from being a slave in the Old Testament, New Testament world uh, in, in often the way it was. Now, there's also something called chattel slavery. People that were captured in war could be made slaves instead of killed. Now, which would you rather be, killed or made a slave? I think most of us would choose slavery. So, you know, the covenant theology works in the, in, the, in the world like this. If you were a member of the society who declared war on your next door neighbor and you were an aggressor and you lost the war, guess what? You could be enslaved because you're under the covenant headship of your nation, of your country. So you, your slavery could, could uh, follow that covenant superiority of... The, the, your, the, the, the nation, the rulers of the nation above you. We haven't got time to go into that, but that's, that's, a, that's an illustration of how these things worked out. But, but the Lord here tells the bondservants, obey in all things your masters. Now, it's interesting. It says here, according to the flesh. What do you suppose that means? According to the flesh. That means that when you're a slave or when you're mowing the lawn for somebody else, you have to, in, your, your flesh has to obey the master. Your flesh has to do what the master says. But what about your spirit? What about, what? you know, you, if you're, let's say you're a lawnmower, you, and you, you've read books and you know how to mow a lawn. 
And you think that the way to mow the lawn is to change every week, to go one way and then the other way, but the guy that's hired you wants to do it the same way every week. In your spirit and your soul, you can say, I know what's right, but guess what you do in the flesh? In the flesh, you do it the way the guy wants you to do it. If you're an abject slave, and we, we, we saw examples of that in American slavery here in the New, new World. The slaves would obey their masters. But guess what? When they got in the, out into the fields, what would they, often they would sing songs. And the songs were songs of liberty. Sing about how they were going to be free once God took them home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Carry me home, you see. So they were songs that on their own time, that is in the field, when they were, if they were doing their jobs, while the flesh did one thing, the spirit could do another. And so you see, the the, the Bible is so full of wisdom, and uh, if you if you parse out each term, you can see what these things mean. Sometimes you can't see it, but other times you come to see it, whether through commentaries or sermons like this or in other things. And the the Lord exhorts bond servants. Uh, obey all things of all your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, but as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing God. That's exactly the kind of slave that Onesimus was. If you read about Onesimus, and it's it's O N um, uh, I S goes on. I, I can't. I'm not going to spell it in the pulpit here, uh, but uh, you'll see he's commended in the pastoral epistles for his servitude, even as he's also given certain commands or certain orders as a slave. And the, the family that owned Onesimus was not ordered to free him like our society might do today, but they were reminded, the Bible reminds them that in Christ, Onesimus is equal with them. <laughs> very, very interesting. So, the propulsion of the system in that day was that if a if a if a if a man became a if a slave became a Christian, guess what? That family would begin to work to that slave's freedom. And uh, so here in America, oftentimes, so so many, uh, almost all of the Scots Irish that came over here at first as colonists were slaves. They were indentured servants for seven years, and so. Usually they couldn't get married until after those seven years were over. They could have a sweetheart. They could have someone that they loved. They could have somebody that they wanted to marry, but they couldn't do it for seven years. So guess what that did? By the time those seven years were over, the guy, if, if the girl was still waiting, if the guy was still able, they really loved each other after that seven years. It's kind of like uh, 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 Isaac and, and Jacob is in their relationships that the Bible talks about, the difficulties that they had getting the, the wives that they wanted. And so, um, so uh, but the, the Christ's word here is very applicable to each of these offices. Now, it's very interesting. At each point here of the exhortation, this is what I'll bring out here to close with. At each point of the exhortation, if we look back, we can see how Christ, how our Lord Jesus Christ exemplified the very things that he's telling us to do. Christ is, in terms of his deity, Christ is equal with the Father, is he not? But for the sake of our salvation, he honored his office as son. 
which was inferior in terms of its order, not in terms of its being, but in terms of its order. He was the son rather than the father. And so even in the garden, Christ prayed, not my will, but thine be done. So we see Christ being submissive to the Father's will. And we're, we see there where the Father got what he wanted. He, the Father was able to have a successful election of certain people for salvation because of his son's submission and his son's love of his father's superiority. And the Bible says that Christ uh, did not see it as something to be envious of, that his father was his, father, his heavenly father, that there was a, 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 a superiority within the divine trinity. Christ did not see it as a thing to be grasped. It says in Philippians that he should be number one in that sense. So Christ in his life and in his offices perfectly exhibits what he's saying here. So he's telling us here, I'm not asking you to do anything that I have not done myself. And it brings us to tears or it should bring us to tears to think that the, uh, the second person of the Godhead stoops to such depths to save us from our sin, that then he's in a place to exhort us to love our wives, to be submissive unto our husbands, to be to obey in all things as he does to the children and the servants. Is Christ not so dear? Does this not prove the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ? Does not this prove his deity, his insight, his love? All things work together for good in terms of scriptural theology and exhortation. So they work to our good ends today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might see the beauty of Colossians, the beauty of these exhortations, how, how Christology works unto sanctification and how Christology works to bless theology, how theology works to ordain and lay out the patterns for Christology and then for pneumatology, the work of the Spirit. Oh God, thou art Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How thou dost love us with a holy love and how thou dost work for our salvations and for our sanctifications. We pray, oh God, that we might be worthy of thee and the gospel with which you clothed us. Help us to be better fathers and mothers and children and servants. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.